Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Puram dangam sangam namasami something buzzing in this room <laughs> and I don't think it's the public address system. <laughs> so this is the uh, first day of integration and you made it through, <laughs> which is a feat in and of itself. Because uh, some of you, those who have been here before, already know this, but perhaps those who, for whom it's the first long retreat that you've done, you may not be aware that there's this certain cutoff valve in the system, uh, and uh, it's the one that tells you when enough is enough during integration week. <laughs> uh, it kind of goes dysfunctional during these three months, and you have a little t- a hard time getting it back and getting regulated again. So if you feel a little bit of a buzz tonight, that's probably what's going on. I was thinking about the end of my first three-month retreat, and uh, I had been a work retreat in here at IMS for the the whole time. And uh, all I could think about on the last day of integration was getting a a cup of coffee, (laughs) because I hadn't had any coffee the whole time. And um, the night before, I was thinking, well, I'll just get in the car and I'll go down to the handy pantry and and get one of those uh, uh, special gourmet coffees. And then, um, on the morning of integration, I went into the dining hall, and by the tea urn was suddenly appeared, magically, all these fabulous coffees (laughs) and hot chocolates and fabulous teas. And I realized that... um, Everyone was kind of emptying out their stashes. (laughs) And I didn't need to go up to the handy pantry. (laughs) Oh, and it was so wonderful. Oh, I just, I remember just standing there and going, and soaking in the aroma of it, you know, and just going, oh, yeah, my senses were so heightened, you know, as they can be at this time. And I just couldn't believe it. It was just miraculous. But, you know, you had the paramis are pretty operative during the retreat, and they're operative in these kinds of moments. And I remember thinking, in fact, I was talking to a friend the other night about this, one of the fellows who was here then, and uh, I was, it occurred to me, it actually occurred to me before digging in and fixing myself a cup, that I might like to offer it to some other people. And so I went looking for them, and they were sitting over in the dining hall by the back door there, huddled around. Uh, it was a, a number of work retreatants. I think at that time we had like four or six. And um, so I went over and I, I said, would you like to, a cup of coffee? And they all said that they would. So we fixed ourselves one and sat there and talked and talked and talked as you do for hours. And partway into the conversation, somebody said, does anybody have any chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> And, and so we kind of pooled our resources, and everybody went back to their rooms and brought back what they had, and it was like this wonderful moment, you know, Butterfingers and Babe Ruth's and uh, M&M's and Hershey bars. And uh, I went into the kitchen and I got a cutting board and a knife, and we sat there and we divvied them all up in small pieces <laughs> and, and just ate it all. It was just... It was an, a, immensely sickening that night. <laughs> we just didn't really have the sense, you know, that, that, that all your sensibilities leave and you don't have the wherewithal to remember to stop. So I remember laying in bed uh, that night with this huge buzz, you know, going, oh, what have I done? <laughs> that awful feeling. So one of the things uh, Michelle said last night 
really touched me, where she was talking about uh, how it is that in our culture we don't really have uh, a sense of applauding the spiritual journey, applauding uh, spiritual practice. And uh, I, I really thought about that because in hindsight I realized that I didn't have a sense of that myself. And I remember at a time, which was one of the first three-month retreats that I ever did, and uh, it was the first day of integration, again. And uh, we were told that morning that uh, somehow Sharon and Joseph had arranged for the Tibetan monks to come and to chant to us that night. As it turned out, they were doing, uh, they were on a concert tour, and they were going to be uh, in Amherst or Worcester and uh, right nearby. And um, I don't know how it happened, whether they called us or we called them or what, but this is what we were told. So we were just like so excited. I mean, you know how you are right now. You're so full of love and so open. And then there was that sense of what incredibly good fortune we had that on this particular night, you know, the first night before it really starts to change, that uh, they were going to be coming and, and chanting for us. So we uh, they, uh, cleared the platform off and got this all set up for them. And then we were told to take our zaffirs and zabatons and to huddle around in the back. And so it was everybody mixed together, yogi, staff, teachers, and just sitting here waiting. And then about uh, 7.30, we could hear them gathering out here and getting, their, getting themselves together. And it was, you know, the excitement was, you know how you are, you're just so uh, energized as it is. So I remember turning to um, the person next to me, and we were teary-eyed, you know, uh, just with the anticipation. And then in they came, and they came in through both sides of the hall, and as they entered the hall, they were doing full prostrations to us. And most of them were walking in, you know, with their hands in Anjali, and then they would go down completely to the ground and do full prostrations to us. And so we were, we were bewildered. We didn't know what was going on, you know. Because uh, we, we, it was like that sense of we wanted to bow to them, you know. And, uh, and then it was explained to us that uh, they could not believe their good fortune. <laughs> that they had been called and um, were able to come and chant for a hundred people who had been sitting for three months. <laughs> and their sense was that it was just such an honor and a privilege for them to uh, be doing this for us and to be sharing in the merit of what we had done. And so I say that by way of really <coughs> reminding us to really sit with and feel the power and the intensity of what it is that you have done these months. And really allow that to sink in. There were so many times throughout this retreat that when I saw you in the halls, I had that feeling of wanting to put my hands in Anjali, many times I did, you know, and just to bow to you. It feels that way right now. <laughs> so tonight I just wanted to try to capture some of the things that might be going on for you and uh, to uh, invite you to reflect on some, some way that you might hold these few days. Because, you know, there can be the sense that the retreat is over and the moving out of it. And it has been my experience that this, these few days of integration are really some of the most useful for you 
and for your practice, and really some of the best days of the retreat. Because what you're doing is starting to move into normal (laughs) activities, uh, the kinds of things that you'll be doing in the months to come. And yet, there's still this incredible sensitivity, this heightened awareness, this capacity for seeing things clearly. So you've got the marriage of something incredibly helpful. And if you really keep the practice going and pay attention really closely in these few days, in many ways you learn things that are, that are at least as, if not more useful, than what you've been learning throughout the, the preceding months. So let me just uh, reflect on a few things that might be helpful. You may notice right now that um, today, in particular, you're um, very, very open and very childlike. And it's important to be aware of that and to use it well. Because, as I was saying, the awareness that you have right now can be brought into your activities as you're moving about the building. One of the first things that I saw myself do coming off of retreat, um, really I think it might have been one of the first times that I spoke. Um, I was talking to somebody back by the uh, washing machine and um, there was something sort of sarcastic in my tone. You know, it just kind of came out flippant. It was like one of the old ways of talking that suddenly was starting to pour back in. And I was aware that, you know, there's a certain kind of uh, sarcasm in our culture that is really considered humorous. And and yet, um, it isn't really, you know. But until you can get close to it with some penetrating looking, that's not apparent, you know, because the cultural moray just kind of lingers and, and we act from a more superficial level than the deeper seeing. So I said something, you know, well, you know, maybe you know, that kind of tone, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and as I said the words, it, it felt like this black gunk that was coming out of my mouth, you know, after not having spoken for three months. I was thinking of that movie, The Blob, from back in the 50s, you know. It was like that. It was this, this uh, protoplasmic blob of black gunk. You know, and, and in my belly I felt like this nauseated feeling. And, and this kind of thing may, may happen for you. Um, and if it does, there can be that tendency to get caught up in the self-loathing. Oh, there I am again, that silly me, that, that same old me again. I thought these things were gone and here they are again. And, and really start to argue it and Um, get caught at that level of reacting to it. But it's far more helpful at this time to stay with the actual experience of what's happening. To stay with the black gunk. Stay with the nauseated feeling instead of moving into the uh, place of reference where you're looking at that and having something to say about it. Because it's like, you know, we think that the way that we learn how to behave skillfully is to form a wholesome resolve and then to do it. And in part that's true. But the reality is that it's the direct experience of what happens to us that is the teacher. It's the heart that's the teacher. It's the experience that's the teacher. So that if we can remember in these kinds of moments where the tendency is so quick to move away from the unpleasantness of things we may see, to just hold it and let the black gunk in. You know, this is how we uh, learn the law of karma, that actions have consequences, that these unkindnesses or just that little off-coloredness or the uh, slightly harmful tinge that might be in our voice, uh, it doesn't serve us. It doesn't feel right. It's like connecting with the truth of our nature. You know, if it wasn't for the fact of our ultimate goodness, this nauseated feeling and the black gunk wouldn't be there. You know, 
So it's that sense of really letting that penetrate so that we can learn, so that we can have the direct experience. And it's not just the difficult things. You know, remember too that, that now all these months you've been developing very wholesome states. And so you, uh, in these next few days you'll see the fruits of that. You see the paramis in action. You know, and there's that, that effort to fix a cup of coffee for each other, or to do something kind, or to, to uh, um, just reach out and, and touch each other a little. And it's to really let that in. These are the beautiful mental states that are not something that we only imagine. We're actually experiencing them. And if we open to and let ourselves feel the wonder of these beautiful states, that's how they keep coming back. That's how they get the momentum and the cultivation to keep arising. It's the same thing. Do you see what I mean? The, the same direct experience of feeling the harmfulness or feeling the beauty and the wonder. That's, that's how we get it. So, so there's this open feeling and the sensitizing and the, and the mindfulness. So I really encourage you to, to use it. In, in just a few days and in the weeks to come in our daily life, it, it's a little bit more difficult to see it. You know, the black gunk might come up, but it's more experienced as sort of like uh, a subtle irritation, maybe a, a minor annoyance that doesn't really fully enter into consciousness. And so we might just project it on the guy in front of us, you know, something like that, and not really see what's happening. But the magic of the practice is working, but it can only work if there's the awareness, if we're there for the experience. So it's to remember to let it in. And you may notice a slight tendency to want to hold on to the pleasantness of uh, what you've experienced here. I was talking to somebody today and she was saying, I don't know why I think that it was so pleasant. <laughs> What's this sense of, oh, this was so great, I want to do it again. But uh, there, is a, there is a level of pleasantness that we've experienced. But now as the retreat uh, breaks up, there's that the flood of the karmic patterns and habits and the old ways trying to find their way back in. And no matter how hard we try to keep them at bay, here, here it's all coming. Because the discipline, the renunciation, the form that you've been practicing that helps keep them at bay is being relinquished. And, and this can be very disheartening and even depressing. I was talking to a yogi, an old yogi on the phone the other night and uh, she was saying that uh, she just doesn't like seeing this. You know, she doesn't like seeing the flood of her karma. That it's hard. It's hard to keep facing it, and it's hard to keep the mindfulness strong in the presence of it. And she was saying that she gets so exhausted with the struggle, and she gets so depressed. We've all had that feeling. But it's important just to sit with it a minute and, and realize that well, I mean, you can be depressed about it, but then you're just depressed. You know? And really to, to, to realize that it might be more useful to look at the underside of what is being said there. There's this moment of experiencing and feeling what you've done, and it's a really pleasant moment. And then there's that sense of, you know, well, I'm going to lose it. It's going away, and I don't want it to leave. And that's the part that gets added on. That's the part that gets that's extra. So if we go back to the pleasantness of it, just consider what can be learned in that kind of experience. Really letting in the wonder of the retreat. This is the kind of thing that um, fuels the practice. 
when it comes time to establishing and sustaining a daily sitting practice or thinking about coming and doing a retreat again, it's born out of this feeling of what it is that you have done and the pleasantness of it. So here again, it's not, it's not out of ideas, it's not out of perceptions, it's out of the direct experience. So to feel that and not go into the things that get added on so that the, the, the pleasantness of the retreat can serve you. But now having said that, there is also the truth that uh, you have to let it go. Let it go. There's the wonder of it and there's the letting it go. So it's time now in these few days to exhale the retreat and inhale the rest of your life. Exhale the retreat and inhale the rest of our lives. I was talking to uh, a dear friend who was helping me the other night uh, think about what I might say to you. And I was telling her this point. And she said that uh, there was a retreat when she made it a practice, um, the practice of letting go. And she said that throughout the whole retreat, she held the mantra in her mind, the mind that clings to nothing the mind that clings to nothing, the mind that clings to nothing. And she said that when the retreat came to an end, there was this moment of the retreat, and then there was the next moment. And this practice of letting go, of not clinging to anything, had cultivated so much equanimity in her heart that there really wasn't any transition there was just the retreat and the non-retreat. <laughs> just like, and, and, and it's so, it should be so familiar to you because this is what you've been doing for the whole three months, is letting this moment rise and this one pass away, rising and passing away. So we can really connect with that, the flow of phenomenon, then the end of the retreat isn't any different than the end of any moment that you've experienced throughout these three months. Now you may notice also a slight, ever so tiny, itsy bitsy, <laughs> puny moony <laughs> tendency at this point to have some opinion about where your practice is, about whether or not you've gained anything during these few weeks and months. And there's that feeling of thinking that not much has happened. Especially, as I said, as you see this old you coming back in, there can be that sense of, well, what happened, you know? I feel like I'm the same as I always was. I'm no different, it's all been a big waste of time. <laughs> Get me out of here, <laughs> I'm never doing this crazy thing again. But the practice has done its magic on us. And I was really reminded of this last week when uh, I was down at the study center attending a course there. And um, uh, I came out to my car at lunchtime and I was gonna run a quick errand to go uh, uptown. And I got to my car, and I was on the driver's side, and I looked at it, and I thought, that's funny, I don't remember parking my car in the trees. But there it was, it was sitting in the trees. And I thought, something's really odd. And so then I walked around to the passenger side, and the whole side of it had been scraped. And uh, the front fender was completely smashed in and the headlight and the taillight, and I mean the full length of my car. <laughs> and so uh, 
I have an old car, it's not worth very much money. And I looked at that and I thought, oh dear, it's totaled, you know. Um, surely there was more damage done to it than it was worth. But I also have a very personal relationship with my car. <laughs> I mean, I love it, it's like Kelsey, you know, to me. And uh, it's just seen me through so many years. I bought it new in 1980. And uh, so I had that moment of, oh, poor baby, you got a bump, you know, you're, <laughs> you're bruised, you know, and I just wanted to, to hold it and to comfort it, you know, how you do. <laughs> but aside from that, I didn't have a whole lot of an emotional reaction to it. You know, there was that sense of being aware of the inconvenience, it's Christmas and I might not be able to get it fixed in time for a trip to, for the holidays and things like that. But as far as like the, you know, the things that I would have done 10, 15 years ago, they didn't come up. And I had that feeling that I know you know what I'm talking about, where you sort of are reaching, you look, you're looking, wait a minute, there's, something's missing. <laughs> there's, there's this place that I, the way that I usually react, and I would try to find it, really literally try to find it. And, it, and it's not there, it's like a, there's a black hole where it used to be, you know. My friend and I were saying, you know, it's, it's funny how you, when this first begins to happen, you don't quite trust it. You think, well, I must be repressing. There's, you know, I'm just pretending. They tell you that you're supposed to not be bothered by these things, and I've just learned it, you know, as some idea that it's not really real. But you look and see, and I know you know what I'm talking about. It's real, isn't it? Something definitely changes. Something's different. So it's to remember that the, the practice is working. And it, it may not feel it in every given moment, but it's, it's times like that that really bring it home to you. The kindness and the equanimity and the wisdom, these are all manifesting as we go along. Someone uh, once asked the Buddha, rather skeptically, what have you gained through meditation? And the Buddha replied, nothing at all. Then, blessed one, what good is it? Let me tell you what I have lost through meditation. <laughs> Sickness, anger, depression, insecurity, the burden of old age, the fear of death. This is the good of meditation, which leads to Nibbana. Well said, blessed one. <laughs> so I'd like to take just a little bit of time to reflect on one more thought. And it's this, and maybe this could be sort of a little koan for the next few days. I really like to invite you to reflect on this. What are the components of these weeks and months that have been so helpful to you, that have made it possible for the seeing, for the being, for the feeling, and for the loving? And to consider what are the implications of that for your regular daily life? So we've all had the feeling during long retreats like this that our regular daily life is certainly here with us on retreat. <laughs> it keeps coming in and we keep having to deal with it. But this is kind of to turn that around and say, what is it about the um, retreat? that I can bring into my daily life. 
One of these is the value of the support of spiritual friends. One person was mentioning this morning about getting a box of cookies every week during the retreat from the Sangha back home. And certainly we've had a a flood of chocolate and brownies and gingerbread and (laughs) all kinds of good things to eat. And the staff have sustained you. And the lights were lit and the vacuums that you needed to use worked and uh, the food was on the table. And there's certainly uh, all of this and you can really feel how uh, the heart is so gladdened and how uh, just these kinds of physical supports really help us to plow through some of the difficulties that you've had to face during the retreat. And then also this morning there was this uh, outpouring of, of the immeasurable support that we feel from the teachers in particular and uh, from the staff and from each other to be able to sustain the retreat. So I certainly have felt this too here at IMS while I was on retreat. But I've also spent a lot of time um, in the Buddhist monasteries. Uh, I go to England uh, quite regularly and try to spend, I used to spend two or three months a year, but since I've been here I can't do so much of that. But I do spend a lot of time there. And even though I chose at one point not to be ordained and that the the being a nun was was not going to be my path, still uh, spending the time with the ordained Sangha is something that I really cherish because I I, I experience their life as sort of like a bridge between retreat life and regular lay life. And actually when I left here, IMS, after being a long-term yogi for a couple of years, I went to the monastery with that sense of, of wanting to integrate, <laughs> you know, go to the monastery to integrate before entering um, fully again into regular lay life. So I go there regularly because it, they, being there just really helps me um, sharpen my remembering of what it is that is the intention of my life, which is to live harmlessly and skillfully and mindfully. And that is so much their practice that, you know, I don't know how else to describe it, but when I'm there, I'm the best that I ever am. I like myself more (laughs) than any other time, (laughs) you know, they they bring out the best. So it was there that I really, it really began to sink into me. Certainly while I was here on retreat, that feeling of um, the support and the importance of spiritual friends came home to me. But there was a a different quality of it there for me. And I could really see how um, that lifestyle was so helpful. Because I I noticed that many times when I had, um, oh, maybe less than skillful impulses and maybe gave in to them while I was there at the retreat, I mean, at the monastery. Um, the way that it would be received was so helpful. There, there wasn't that judging or criticizing of my shortcomings. You know, there's just, it was sort of like this matter-of-fact sense of, oh yeah, that's that, you know, and, and that's what we're all here for, and that's what we work on. And, you know, there isn't any sense of having to be a certain way. I mean, I thought they were all going to be saints, and and holy, and, and and in a way they are, but I mean, in a way they're just like us, and they have to deal with the same kind of things. So um, it was just really, really very supportive for me to experience uh, the, that kind of response to my human failings. And one time, I remember watching one of the nuns as she was dealing with a, a particularly difficult person who was there. And um, she was just, yes, yes, you know, yeah, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, surely, I, I don't suppose she was loving the experience, 
But I watched her, and there's this sense at the monastery that whenever something unskillful or harmful comes at you, that uh, or is sent out from you, that that nobody quite picks it up. Do you know what I mean? It's like if I want to go and gossip and talk about somebody, you know, it, it just sort of lands there. You know, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't have the same sense of um, wanting to volley it. And I watched this nun in this particular situation, and she actually, it, when this person was really getting enraged and being very belligerent, she actually kind of took a little step to the left, just ever so slightly. You might not have even noticed that she was doing it. But the ener energetically, I could see that the stuff that was coming at her just went right, right there, you know? She just kind of moved herself out of the line of fire. And it was really, really helpful to me to, to see that. Because then in the very next moment, she, she was looking at this person with a smile. <laughs> just smiling at them, letting it all be. And we have felt this here. You know, in a way, there's many ways throughout these last few months that um, We've had to bear each other, yeah. and it's okay. And it's been so wonderful to know that there are this many people who are willing to bear me, you know? That feeling, and that sense of gratitude for that kind of support. So to reflect on this and remember how important it is so that uh, we gather our, around ourselves the kinds of people who will support us in that way. And then there's the value of um, restraining the senses and being content with little. So you've managed here for a really long time with very little. When you think about it, um, uh, there's there's not very much that you brought with you to sustain you as compared to what you're probably going back to. As someone was saying today at the LTY meeting that um, she couldn't believe, uh, she noticed uh, during her time here how she had done with so little. And she couldn't believe, but it was like something new that she knew about herself. It's almost like asking ourselves, like, what does it take to be a human being? You know, and it doesn't take that much. <laughs> and here we've had a, an opportunity to, to experience how, how little, in many ways, it takes. The first few times that I, I went on retreat, I packed these huge suitcases, you know, <laughs> and I brought all kinds of stuff. You know, robes and pictures for the windows and things like, pictures for the door, walls, and... Uh, you know, little by little, with each time that I came back, having realized from the previous retreat that I didn't use but a third of what I brought, you know, I, I left more and more behind. And gradually over the years it got to, to be that uh, I, would, I could pack more to go away for a weekend to a friend's than I could pack to come here for three months. Yeah. And this is a good thing to know about ourselves. And the wrong thing to do with that knowing would be to decide that now you're going to go home and pare down and compulsively get rid of everything. And that's what I need to do. I'm going to simplify my life. I'm going to get rid of all this excess baggage. That's, that's the right way. That's the skillful way. It's important to remember that our lives are very complicated as Westerners. And we do need things. So it's not to go to that place with it. But really, in the same way, um, hold this as a reflection. Hold this sense of needing so little as a reflection in the mind. And there's a, a very subtle way that we now know that we can be content with very little. And this is the same kind of thing. This can serve us very well. Because when the impulse comes up to gratify ourselves, to want more and more and more, to think that you can't make it without this one more thing, you know, 
then the moment of really having experienced the contentment with so little is there to help us. It comes up. And it is part of the experience in the psyche that comes into play in that kind of moment. So that it becomes a safeguard for that following through on that impulse to gratify and to have more. And more and more over time as we do the practice, the uh, impulses to gratify, to push away, are weakened. And it's by holding this kind of realization that that happens. And finally, there's this uh, value to be had in not being able to pick and choose. I asked uh, one of the senior monks last year, Ajahn Viradamo, I had gone to Amaravati last fall to on a very, spe- very specific uh, mission, I wanted to talk to the senior monks and nuns about uh, lay life and how we might learn more about how to lay- live well as lay people. And I had a very specific mission in, ma- in mind because I had just come on here at, I- at IMS as a resident teacher, and uh, I thought, well, um, staff and the way that we live here on staff um, could benefit greatly from some of the things that the Buddha set up for the monastics. And I thought, well, let me go and ask them. Let me go and talk to them. Uh, Well, how could we translate some of their life into ours? Because we're not monks and nuns, and we're not trying to be monks and nuns, but there is a very special way that we live here at IMS. And so I thought, well, this would be really helpful. So I asked Ajahn Viradhamma, I had an interview with uh, Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Viradhamma together, and I asked them both this question. What is it about the monastic life that makes it so supportive to waking up? And it was Ajahn Viradhamma who answered. He said that he could sum it up in three things. That monastic life involved practicing restraint of the senses, being content with little, and deferring to elders. And that living their life in that way brought the fruits of practice. So it's this last one, the deference to elders, (laughs) that we seem to have a lot of trouble with in the West. We, We don't really like hierarchy and we don't like being told what to do. But if you take the idea of that literally, then, yeah, you can have a lot of problems with it. But if you go more to the essence of what it is that the Buddha was trying to get at by having set it up that way, then you really can get a sense of the pure genius and the value of the essential training that's being done through that. And and look at your experience here in the last few months. It has very much been that. You know, you've experienced the the value of this particular training. You haven't had a heck of a whole lot of say about what you do. You've submitted yourself, turned yourself over to a form, and people have scheduled your time for you, told you where to be and when. get the feel of that. This is a way of helping us to experience directly this tendency to form opinions and views about things, to say which way we think it ought to be, to say which way we want it to be, to argue about the way that it is. At the monastery, you know, you don't get to do that. Like, you know, I, I would notice, for instance, if I really wanted to work on the computer and I got assigned working in the yard and I made a problem out of that, then I suffered, you know. If you really wanted to be a pot washer and you were a veggie chopper, or if you really wanted to 
have a quiet vacuum cleaner. <laughs> you know, if you really wanted to do walking meditation outside and it was snowing or icy, then you suffered. And I think that this is really the essence of what is being said in this thing. It goes back to that Zen teaching, that the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. <laughs> deferring to elders, deferring to the form, deferring to the structure. Really, it's a, it's a major training tool for having insight into the suffering nature of self-view. You know, what I think, what I want. So on retreat and at the monastery, I would watch my mind go back and forth with all the wanting and the hating and the wanting and the hating and just constantly, you know, how your head can feel like it's going to explode from this. And, and somewhere in the midst of all of the chatter, you begin to notice the movement, just the movement of the mind, the going back and forth, and really begin to realize that it's that that's the suffering. It's like being a veggie chopper or being a pot washer. The direct experience of that is just that. You know, it's sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's not, and that's the way it is with everything. You know, but if we're locked into wanting this when this has happened, then we're suffering. So it's to give it up and give it over. So not being able to pick and choose. It really does um, help us to wake up to the suffering nature of the experience of picking and choosing. So I, I really invite you to consider the essence of that in these next few days. So here, um, just stay with it. You have the opportunity in these next few days to, to really begin to see more what it is like uh, in your normal waking daily life and to do that with an increased uh, experience of attention. So it's a really, really rich climate for reflection and for discussion. So I invite you, encourage you, to make the best use of it. Mm. I'm looking for Alexander, is he here? Oh, good. <laughs> uh, Alexander and I wanted to close tonight with a chant, uh, remembering that, like the monks who came here, there is this practice in the Buddhist teachings of uh, sharing the merit of the practice. And um, so there's a chant that has come down to us through the ages that uh, we're not going to do in Pali, we're going to do in English. Uh, and if you know it, I want to invite you to chant along with us. But if you don't, it's just to uh, close your eyes and be aware of what's being said. What we're doing is uh, sharing the blessings, sharing the goodness of the months of practice with those who are dear to us, with our relatives, our friends, uh, world leaders, with the planets, the stars, the moon, celestial beings, um, sending out the merit of all of our good work. Even the Lord of Death is included in it. <laughs> and so, uh, I think some of you probably know this. Maybe you'd like to do it with us. Okay. 
Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life, May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. So there's another period of walking and sitting meditation, and do take it easy tonight.